When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here as we're into November, final weeks of the tennis season. The players making their push for the end of the year. The finals on both tours are coming up. Paris is the scene for the men's action right now. I'm joined by Tennis Channel broadcasters. Been calling a lot of these matches. First time on Tennis Channel Inside In, but we spoke before. It's Jason Goodall. Jason, thanks for joining the show. Great to be here. The last time uh, we talked, I, I remember it was on the Tennis Channel Live podcast. And you were just getting used to Tennis Channel. And I'm just wondering now, a couple months in, if you settled into just all the tennis that we have and just all the tournaments you're broadcasting on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, we're about six months in, aren't we? Yeah. Time flies yeah. when you're having fun. I mean, it's just so great to be able to get across all of the events. You know, that's the big difference working here at Tennis Channel is that they have the rights to everything so that every week when you pitch up, there's great stories everywhere on both the men's and the women's tours. And we can get across all of those. And then you get a big week like last week and this week, four tournaments last week, this week with the Billie Jean King Cup in Prague as well. So you've got team events as well as individual tournaments. It's been fabulous. I have to ask you before we get to Paris and the Billie Jean King Cup, the uh, French Open match that you called with Jim Courier. It was Nadal Djokovic semi. I remember watching our coverage and just thinking, just it was a moment, right? Like even when it was happening, you didn't know yet who was going to win. It gets to that third set, that tiebreaker. What were those experiences, those moments, like calling a match for in the moment you knew something special was happening? Well, that was a, a career high point for me. You know, such a meaningful match, uh, such a memorable one, and also the quality of tennis that we were witnessing. And it's strange, as you go into a match like that, you're always hopeful that it's going to live up to its billing. You know there's so much on the line as far as the big picture is concerned. But then also, once the match starts and they both start to play as well as they did and the reaction from the crowd and, and the reaction within the tennis world, you start to get a sense of this is something very special. And then, you know, everything gets taken up a notch. You start to make sure that you have to give the moment the respect it deserves. You have to treat it correctly. You have to make sure you're not interrupting the moment with too much commentary. So that from a pro- professional standpoint, you've got to be very wary of that. But yeah. then you're also in the moment and you're so enjoying it. You know, working with Jim was was fabulous. Somebody that had won that tournament a couple of times, so he, he knew exactly what the players were going through. And so that was a unique experience for me in that regard too. So I was, it was almost like I was having that out-of-body experience of enjoying calling the match and the insight that I was getting from Jim as to what was happening on the court as a tennis fan, just enjoying watching these rallies unfold point after point. Absolutely incredible. But then from a professional perspective, just had to step back a little bit and just make sure that I was trying to get the balance right between, you know, signposting what was important within the match, but then just trying to lay back a little bit and just allow the match to unfold without getting in the way of it. So it was an incredible experience for me I mean one that I'll remember for the rest of my life and it was just a magical moment really and and sort of the high point of my commentary career so far 
but you don't want to like catch yourself enjoying it too much like a fan. You have to remember you have a job to do, and it was it was great. I thought the broadcast went well, Jim, adding all that insight and then knowing French. So when I, that part when they were like the curfews lifted, they can stay. I know that was great, right? It was great. It was riveting stuff, um, and I just remember watching it, thinking this was like a high point for our production as well, uh, being on the call for that one. Speaking of Djokovic, he's back now in ATP uh, in an event. He's playing the Paris Masters event, which he's won many times. And this is the first time, Jason, we've seen him since the U.S. Open. He took a break. I think he's pretty transparent that he needs to hit the reset button mentally as much as physically. What were your thoughts on that first match back, Fusevich? It goes three sets, a little rusty, but still when he needed to, turned it into overdrive. Yeah, he's good enough, isn't he, mm-hmm. against someone like Fucevic. Uh, certainly a little rusty, no doubt about it. And, I mean, who knows what he was going through after that loss in the final of the U.S. Open. You know, there was so much at stake yeah. there. And he was very open about that throughout the season, which is something that I really respected. At the championships in the summer, you know, he was interviewed and he said, I want it all. I, I want to win all four majors and the gold medal at the Olympics, you know. And it's, it's rare that a player would be that upfront with all that he wanted to achieve. Under that kind of pressure, it would have been so easy for him to say, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm taking it a match at a time, blah, blah, blah. But I loved the fact that he was so yeah. open about what he wanted to achieve and then failed to do so. So first at the Olympics and then at the US Open. So that must have been a huge blow for him. But I think it's so nice to see him back at the scene of uh, the tournament where he's had so much success previously. That helps, five-time yeah. former champion. And with so much at stake at the end of this season, not only looking forward to Australia, the possibility of winning a 21st major, that's obviously huge to separate himself from uh, Federer and Nadal, but also to become the only player to be ranked number one player in the world for seven <laughs> year and time you know so that's big yeah. you know it separates him from Sampras and so all of these records that he's now able to achieve are putting a bit of distance between him and everybody else I mean these players are the all-time greats in our game Sampras Federer Nadal but you know th- there was a moment there at the US Open where he could have done something that hadn't been achieved in the open era you know and that's that's very much on a different level to separating himself from Federer and Nadal, which, of course, is his big goal. But I think he's still got a lot to play for. I think he will achieve that goal. Uh, still mathematically possible for the likes of Medvedev to catch yeah. him. But uh, I think this next 12 months is is going to be the most successful in his career in terms of all of these records that he's going to be able to break. And he, he is going to be able to put some distance between himself and the other the great players because on paper, in terms of the numbers, he's the greatest of all time. It's hard to argue at this point based on the numbers, as you said. And we know that every tennis player, when they take time off, there's going to be some rust in that first match or two out. He's much like the other all-time greats, Rafa, Roger. He hits the ground running when he comes back. He comes back fit, rejuvenated, and uh, he's no stranger to tough competition. So, yeah, he was good enough, as you said. Uh, Not the easiest match. These fields are brutal because we know 54, you have to qualify to get in. Uh, I mean, the, the story of the qualifying into into what we're seeing now is Marcos Caron, right? That Simone match where he was down, I think, 5-love, and then it was 5-1, 40-love. I mean, how is that even possible? <laughs> I don't, I don't you know. know you, you're playing in the first round qualifying. You're having a nightmare. You've gone to a yeah. third set. You, you're 5-love down. You're playing against, you know, someone in Gilles Simon has had so much success. He's yeah. playing in Paris, getting a lot of support, even though it's the qualifying and you find yourself 5-love down, 5-1, Simon serving for it, 40-love up. You've got no chance to win that match, but he hung around. He's a really good competitor, saved six match points in that third set, wins seven consecutive games. Suddenly you find yourself playing with house money 
in the last round of qualifying. You get the win there. Suddenly you're in the main draw. You've got nothing to lose. You feel like you're, you're virtually invincible given yeah. what happened in the first round of qualifying. But a great match against Tiafo, who again, it's a pretty decent draw because Tiafo undoubtedly was really tired off the back of sure. an incredible run to the final sure, yeah. of Vienna last week. So that was a good draw, but he had to battle hard in order to win it. He did. And then he backed it up beautifully today, getting the better of Diego Schwartzman. I mean, how good is that win there? Schwartzman will make you win every single point. So for him to have been able to do that and still going, obviously, is incredible. But the qualifiers and the lucky losers have had a lot of success. Tiafo, remember, was a qualifier in Vienna. Yeah. Won both of his matches in three sets there. So it just shows you these guys that get battle-hardened earlier in the week, yeah. get used to the conditions. The, the strength in depth is such on both tours, but particularly the men's tour, that these guys can go all the way. And Garon is somebody who the Schwartzman match, I think, highlighted it. You mentioned he's, he hangs around. He's a fighter in there. He wins two tie breaks against Schwartzman. Not easy to do by any means. Uh, career year for him by far. I mean, he is somebody that's reinvented his career the last couple of years. He's bought in. Uh, riding that American tennis wave, we mentioned Tiafo uh, last week. Taylor Fritz is on a little bit of a heater as well. This is what did you I, say on a little bit of a heater. A little bit of a heater. I like is it. That a phrase? Uh, no, maybe, I love it. It's, it's a phrase now. I'm going to use that tomorrow. He is, and you know what? I think the I think the common theme that I've been most impressed by Fritz and Tiafo Jason is that in the past a big loss might derail not just them but other players. You know, Tiafo loses to Andy Murray in that four hour nearly match. You know, before in Belgium, and Fritz loses to Chilich last week in Saint Petersburg in a match he could have easily won. What do they do at this point in their career? They dig in and they go to the next tournament and they handle business. So that's what, I mean, we, I think we kind of knew the game was there, but those are the mental breakthroughs that I look for. Yeah, and I think historically the Americans haven't necessarily traveled well at the tail end of the season to Europe. They don't yeah. particularly like going there for long stretches. It's hard. The indoor season, there's not a lot of practice. You're hanging out in miserable weather at the hotel a lot. So, you know, it, it's it's not the best time of the season. And yeah. you've played a lot of tennis already. You know, it's very easy to think, okay, I just want to go home and I want to get stuck into the off season and then think about next year. Right. So what I really like about all these guys is they're all pitching up, they're all playing in a qualifying and they're all coming through the qualifying. Tommy Paul, another one this mm. week that qualified as well. And they're playing tough matches and they're winning them. You know, yeah. and I think Taylor Fritz, I mean, he played so well in Indian Wells, had those three big wins, a couple of top 10 wins there in the form of a Berrettini and Sinner, I think it was, as Verev also beaten there as well. So, then disappointing loss to Basilashvili. Didn't play as well as he could have done, even though Basilashvili played well. Goes to St. Petersburg. Break up in the final, in that deciding set against Chilich, a match that he should have won. Mm -hmm. He didn't play well when it really mattered. You know, he's one and four in finals, and now suddenly one and five. So that would have been a big disappointment. Would have been very easy for him to think, okay, I've played well of late. I've, I've had enough you now. Got Rublev coming up. Yeah, it's you know, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. And yeah. then, no. Pitches up, puts the hard hat back on, and really goes to work this week. So I, I was very impressed with his win over Rublev because that, that meant a lot. Rublev, we know, gives you nothing. He's had another great season, plays well on these relatively slow courts in Paris. He makes you work exceptionally hard. So I, I look to the likes of Paul, Fritz, Tiafo doing well at the end of the season as something that bodes really well for their future. They're, they're all doing well at the same time. Seb Corder as well, of course, a great win for him over Chilich. In straight sets, served incredibly well. Someone who has struggled since the summer, but again, wants to finish the season strongly. So all these guys now just starting to push each other. It's the younger crew, and they're all getting on really well, and they're all uh, really making sure that they're, they're all getting close to maximizing their potential. You're getting these top 10 wins, too. I think Fritz has had three in a row now in the top 10. Uh, TFO in the last year has notched about four, so a couple of sets of pass. 
it's a good time for these guys to break through. Riley Opelk, I think, put it pretty well. They're, they're, the quantity is there, Jason. It's just that there isn't that world beater yet. Somebody, maybe it's Corda, one of these two. Maybe there's some potential there. We'll see. Brooksby's in the rage, too. So there's options to see who's going to take that next, arguably the hardest step to do, is to bust into that top 10. Yeah, and there's time for those guys because they're still young. You know, So that's, that's certainly the goal. There's no doubt about yeah. it. I think it's nice that you've got you know, four or five, six players that are all doing well in, in the, the top 50. I think Corder today had his 10th win against top 30 opposition on the season. So again, you're beating your peers. You're beating the best players in the world. So I think then the cream will rise to the top. You know, so you've got four or five players. They'll keep pushing each other. Suddenly the draw will break open or you'll break the draw open <laughs> like Fritz did in yeah. Indian Wells with those three big wins in a row. And then you never know what will happen. So I, I think they're giving themselves the best possible chance. If you had to put your, your house on it, you'd probably go with Corder, you know, because he's had such an incredible season, 118 in the world, so starting the year now, well and truly encased inside the world's top 50 and going higher all the time. And the next goal is to get seeded at the majors, then suddenly top 20, and then you never know what will happen. But I think there's an opportunity for all of those guys. When you look at Tiafo and Fritz, the, the, the players that they've beaten in Fritz, and Tiafo, the way that he's responded when right. he gets on the biggest courts and the biggest stages, you know, he's very much a showman. But it's hard to bring your best tennis when it matters most. But that's what those players are starting to do now. So I think... It, in order to win majors, you have to be able to do that. So I think there's been so many positives this season as far as American men's tennis is concerned. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Jason Goodall on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, shifting away from the Americans, we got to talk about Carlos Alcaraz. Because mm. this is, talk about a moment, like this feels like a career moment for him. What, what we're watching transpire from the upstart kid that has some game to now he's knocking off top 10 players. And this is... The center match today, the quality was exceptional. Sinner is into the top 10 himself, a matchup we're probably going to see for a while. Alcaraz's movement off the charts, a lot of power for someone standing under six feet tall, and he gets up for these matches now. I, this is a legit threat to uh, the ATP hierarchy for the next decade. To anybody. To anybody, right? I mean, yeah. Semi-finalist last week in Vienna, that great run at the U.S. Open, the way that he was able to beat Tsitsipas there in that deciding set tiebreak. I first started to watch uh, Carlos closely at the start of this season, and you could see he was a great ball striker, but I thought he was fairly one-dimensional, you know, just hitting everything the same pace, really hard, yeah. big forehand, you know, decent shots, no real weaknesses. But I think the improvement that we've seen from him throughout the season, uh, Juan Carlos Ferreira doing a great job there. Now, last week in Vienna, we saw him serving and volleying. We saw him hitting returns and coming in behind them, playing all court tennis, using his slice back and Incredible movement. Murray, I think, said after his match with him last week, he said he's just so strong for an 18-year-old. So quick around the court. He's got so much variation mm -hmm. within his game. So I think Ferreira's doing a great job of one eye on the now. I think he's 20 in the race now, Alcaraz, mm -hmm. at the moment. So, you know, breaking into the top 20 off results this season. One eye on the future. How are we going to compete for majors? I remember uh, talking to a couple of the uh, 
former Spanish players, uh, Alex Correcha in particular, and I said, you know, uh, who have you guys got that's going to be as good as Nadal or, or not, if not as good, yeah. certainly within a chance of winning a major. Right. And he said, well, we haven't really got anybody. And then a couple of years ago, he said, uh, this guy Alcaraz, he was like 15 at the time. You know, he said, no, this guy is proper. You know, we've had some good players like Carreño Booster and uh, RBA, but this guy is He's definitely going to yeah. be a Grand Slam champion. You know, and then suddenly he started to uh, continue to evolve over the last couple of years and made his breakthrough earlier this year. But I just think the rapid improvement that we've seen from him uh, and just like Seb Corda, you know, again, just continuing to win yet improve at the same time. Brooksby, to a similar extent. Yeah. You know, we only saw him play from the summer onwards, really, Brooksby. Right. right. You know, played a couple of challenges and then all of a sudden in Newport made the final there. And before you know it, uh, he's competing with the best in the business. So I think when you have that rapid improvement, Casper uh, Ruud, similar scenario, yeah. right? So, so then can you have a season or six months or so of consolidation and then can you continue to kick on thereafter? And I think we're going to see that from all of those players. Yeah, the fitness side of things, he's in he's in tremendous shape. He's getting stronger. That's what stood out to me in the last year. He's putting some muscle on. He had the, you know, unfortunately his body kind of wasn't cooperating at the U.S. Open, so we hope that that's not well, It was a new experience for him, wasn't yeah. it? You know, he just played so much time. I mean, that's what happened to Brooksby, too. Right? Yes. Yeah, so. So, so you've got to give them time to get yeah. used to playing in majors because you've got to remember... <laughs> Back in the day, all of the Masters 1000 finals used to be five uh, sets. Yeah. Used to play a lot of Davis Cup five <laughs> sets, you know, and in the majors. Now that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So you only get the opportunity to yep. taste uh, what it what it takes to come through back-to-back yeah. -back five set matches and majors. And you were there when, uh, not to date yourself too much, but when Nadal and, and to an extent Federer and those guys are coming up, there's that pattern of, okay, they're making noise as a teenager. They're notching some big wins. I remember Nadal beat Moya. You might have been on the mm. call for that one. Yeah, in, in and, Hamburg, uh, right? In Hamburg, yeah. yeah, on clay. And it was like, wow, he mm. just beat this guy. So he gets on the radar. He pairs up with a good coach. He's doing all the right things. And now it's a question of, can he put everything together? And it's consistency. It's maybe the, the more boring part of the job, but can he do this week in, week out? That's, I mean, he gets that down. If he starts showing up at every single tournament, I mean, it's going to be top 10 before we know it. Yeah, well, you remember yeah. when Nadal played in his first sort of big tournament. He'd played a couple previously. It was maybe like his third of his career in Monte Carlo. Played Albert Costa, who was the reigning French Open champion. Beat him mm -hmm. and went on to beat Moyer in Hamburg a little later on in that <laughs> clay court swing. But the thing I remember about Nadal was he looked the same as he does now when he was 15 or 16 years of age, yeah. right? And it's the same with Alcaraz. So strong, you know, yeah. legs like tree trunks. So, yeah. so you have that advantage that it's not going to take you two or three years. If you remember, Andy Murray is an 18-year-old, skinny as a rake. Zverev, similar scenario. Saw him play as a 15-year-old initially in Hamburg, uh, but needed a five-year plan to get in the kind of shape that he's in now. It was yeah, the these same guys with don't Murray. Need, yeah, he doesn't you know, need Yes, it. you had to employ Jez Green to put you on that program yeah. and work incredibly hard to, to get fit enough to be able to play week in, week mm -hmm. out. For Nadal initially and for Alcaraz, they're already in that kind of great shape. Mm -hmm. So that is a huge advantage for them to have. Well, maybe those uh, wins for Murray over TFO and uh, Alcaraz look a little better. I know he lost him the last time he played him. but uh, And just speaking of Murray, I, he hadn't lost a match, Jason, where he had a match point in close to a decade. He had seven Crazy. against for who didn't even know he was playing until a couple hours before. Gets that Brooksby spot. It's why you got to lace up the sneakers and just you always, you know, you never know until the match is played what's going to happen. We were all, uh, <laughs> all looking forward to his match with Brooks because they play so similarly, weren't yeah. we? And then it was kind of like that feeling of disappointment when Brooksby wasn't able to play, pulled out, injured, and then suddenly you're thinking, cop for okay, well, you know, he played last week in Vienna. He played singles and doubles, got lucky losers in both. He had to travel, I think, 
early Saturday morning or late Friday night to get to Paris, play in a qualifying there. He was spent after his first match. I think he only won three games last round of qualifying. And so you thought, okay, well, this is good for Murray. You know, decent draw cup for somebody who's a really, really good player, but, you know, uh, he's very, very tired. Tail end of the season, this should be good for Murray, but what a match we got. I mean, that's what I love about these events. You know, you never know where the, yeah. the epic matches are going to come right. from, especially early in the tournaments. And, and you have to take your hat off to Kopfer. I thought he competed exceptionally well. He's got a great set of wheels on him, lovely feel. Played some great all-court tennis and never knew when he was beaten. I mean, Murray, to, to have that many match points, I think seven in total, and, and to not win, I mean, that, he will have had trouble sleeping that night, but it was tr tremendous drama. And uh, I loved every minute of it. Take your hat off to Kopfer, though, because he came back with the win again today, didn't he? He did. He, he's he's on a tear, um, and I definitely think that those points, I rewatched all seven match points saved. It wasn't the quote-unquote choking performance. Kepfer played very brave yep. in those moments. Most of them, I mean, were won on winners. So uh, tip your hat to him. Some unfortunate Is he on a heater? At the moment. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah kind of. Well, I guess I think he needs one more. Okay. You know, okay. Fritz had a couple tournaments. Yeah, okay. we'll wait a little bit on heater. For, <laughs> can't just throw that around liberally. Got okay. to like really okay. earn it. Uh, I say the unfortunate thing is, wanted to see more sets of pass. He retires, walk over, uh, retires at four two against Popper and down in the first set. He didn't say what was wrong, and that's kind of been a hot button thing as well. I actually, Jason, don't have a problem with him kind of keeping it private. You don't want to expose some stuff out there. I just want to see Sitsipas healthy, and it's a shame that we didn't get the healthy version of Stefanos into this Paris tournament. He's had kind of an interesting last couple of weeks, well, I would he, say. He's played a lot of matches this year. I think that was his 73rd. Yeah. Today he's had 55 wins, but that's a lot of tennis. No breaks, right? Like he's no. just gone right through. And some of these tournaments, he plays singles and doubles. He was playing some doubles with his brother earlier in the year as well. And, and I heard from a Greek colleague that he said it was an arm injury that he's had since about 2014 that's Oof. just flared up a little bit. Oof. And that he, he knows how to take care of it. And he just wanted to be, you know, to make sure that he was going to be good to go hereafter. Bublik yesterday was complaining about the balls they use in the Dunlop ball in Paris. A lot of the players have complained about the Dunlop ball. They say it's, it's fairly soft and it gets fluffed up and, and it, that puts a lot of stress on your arm. Bublik yesterday, uh, who got some treatment mid-match, yeah. was saying that it really just vibrates all the way up your arm. And so one or two players have said that, uh, you know, at the tail end of a long season, uh, that can cause problems. And I think that might have been the case for Pass. Just the conditions and the balls might have been such that it just uh, had that old injury flaring yeah. up again. But uh, good news is that if it is something that he's had to deal with in the past, he'll know how to deal with it again. Well, we hope to see him, you know, healthy for the ATV finals where he's got his ticket there. Zverev, who won earlier today, as, long, as well as Medvedev, the match you called, which was straight sets over uh, Ivaska. But Anything but simple, yeah, though, right? 5-1 in the first set. He ends up getting to 5-all, has the break there, and then almost double faults his way out of it. what was a routine service game, wins the third match point there. And if I heard you guys correctly, 51st match win this year for Medvedev? Yeah. Just talk about playing a lot of tennis, but he is almost a, a Russian machine. He doesn't seem like he gets tired ever. Well, so many of these players now uh, have clocked up 50 or more wins this year. So it shows that they're playing, you know, pretty much week in, week out, and they've been going deep in these tournaments. And what I like is they're still all relatively fit and healthy and still bringing their best tennis at the tail end of a, of a long, and you've got to remember, challenging year. You know, a lot yeah. of these tournaments still being played in bubbles. So there's a lot, you know, that, that they have to deal with week in, week out. I think as tennis fans, you know, we've been so lucky that we've seen such great tennis throughout the course of, you know, what can be considered a difficult season. But, you know, you're right. I think it's never easy. You've won your first major. I saw him at the Labor Cup. I said, what is it like, you know, winning your first major? He said, it's the same. I still watch Netflix. I still play Game Boy. No problem. But he said, 
it's just a step in the right direction. I've got other goals. I've got many more that yeah. I want to achieve in the game. So uh, I, I think he was very switched on to w what it was going to be like when he won his first major. He'd, he'd come close previously. And I think it was nice for him then to play the Labour Cup, something a little different. He only played the one match there. And, and you know, it, it was it was a, a good week for him. Not a, not a regular tournament. And then to have a little bit of time off and then come back in Paris, defending champion somewhere where he's played some good tennis before. And historically, he likes the tail end of the season. Yeah. The conditions should suit his game. And as Jim Courier was saying in commentary, you know, the likes of Djokovic and Medvedev, they need a couple of matches to get used to the different conditions of playing indoors. So we can judge them, I think, a little more readily, maybe quarterfinals or semifinals stage. And he wants world number one. Like, he really wants it. And it was interesting on an old podcast on our network. I heard Kim Kleister say... You know, the majors were great. That's what she dreamed of. But she also dreamed of being number one. And that is almost on level playing field for these big tournaments, these big championships to say, to see in writing, to see, have the trophy, I am the number one player in the world. And that's within within reach. And, you know, he's going to give it up and, and try to defend these tournaments that he won so well at the end of last year. It's always big, isn't it, for these players? I mean, you, you have all of your various goals. Win your first tournaments on tour, break into the top 100, top 50, top 20, top 10. And then it's getting very serious at the top. And, and if you are a former Grand Slam champion, that's always how you get introduced. And if you're a former world number one, you know, that's a big deal. There aren't many that are mm -hmm. able to have that kind of consistency at the highest levels of the game to be the best player on the planet. And so, you know, that is a major goal. And look at Andy Murray in 2016. You know, he knew at the time that that was his chance. And so it's he, like a maniacal well, pursuit for it. It like had he to was, be. Yeah. It had to be because it for for... <laughs> You know, six events for a two, three-month period, that's all he could think about 24-7 because that was going to be his one chance to achieve that, you know. Yeah. And that pretty much was the end of his career physically. You know, the, the amount of tennis that he had to mm -hmm. play that season and his Olympic year as well, remember, which he won a gold, that it was too much for his body. And mm -hmm. since then, he hasn't really been the same physically yeah. yet. If you ask him now, he says, well, you know, I understand that and maybe I did push my body a little too much, but if I didn't... I may not have been able to achieve that. And had I not been able to achieve that, you know, I would have had regrets now because yeah. to say that in this era, the toughest era of all time, where the big three have been so dominant, Murray has been a Grand Slam he champion, there, double yeah. gold medalist at the Olympics <laughs> and yeah. world number one and year-end world number one. I mean, it's incredible. But that is how hard you have to push yourself in this day and age to achieve that kind of goal. So it's a big deal. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. More with Jason Goodall on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, and on that same note, we have a couple of anniversaries today. You know, I want to give a shout out to Andy Roddick. 18 years since the last American got to that number one spot for the first time. 18. 18. It's a long time for you guys, man. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's been a sad <laughs> state of affairs. I'll get our best detectives on it. Uh, another American, too. And this was, I'll do the math in my head quickly, 46 years ago today. The first time the WTA rankings were unveiled, it was Chrissy Everett at Chrissy. number one. So same day. You Don't know. beat Chrissy. Can't, no, especially on clay. I think the younger generation, there's two things just, Jason, I want to just bring up to the younger generation that doesn't really, you know, wasn't around for it. They don't understand. 
how good Chrissy Everett was on clay in particular was crazy. But uh, just how dominant Monica Sellis was before her unfortunate incident. I mean, it was, it was, you, the pace was crazy. What did she win? Seven or eight majors as a teenager? I think it's eight. Yeah. Before she turned 20. Yeah. So you're talking to Emma Raducanu, you know how incredible it is for her to win the US Open <laughs> yeah. at 18. I mean, she won eight of those, Monica. Yeah. So I mean, it's one of the saddest stories yeah. in our sport. What a great champion. What a great person. Yeah. So nice to see her in Indian Wells and at the Labor Cup and sort of coming to some of the tennis events mm -hmm. now. But what an amazing player she was. And for the likes of Chrissy and Martina, you know, what a great rivalry that was. It transcended yeah. tennis. It was one of the great sporting rivalries. And what people often forget as well is how hard they had to work to build up the tour. Nowadays, you know, the players that are successful earn a lot of prize money. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, you got to remember that Chrissy won 18 majors. You know, she didn't play a lot of the majors in Australia or even at the French, which, of course, was her main strength because she was having to play team tennis mm -hmm. to try and earn decent money mm -hmm. as the best player on the planet. And that just doesn't happen now. So with the, with the prize money and the endorsements yeah. that the players get, they can concentrate solely on improving their own personal record and winning as many matches as they can. Back then, they had to support the tour. They had to play week in, week out. And th they were so committed to doing that. And the players of this day and age have benefited because of their commitment. So, I mean, Chrissy and Martino and all of the players that played then, Tracy Austin, who came along a little bit later, uh, absolutely incredible. But w when you look at uh, consistency, particularly on clay, everybody talks about Nadal. You want to check out Chrissy's numbers and compare them to Rafa. They're yeah. just as good, if not better. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, Pam Shriver told me that every major Pam's semifinal... Pam's not so good on the clay. <laughs> no, right? not so What's good. What's Pam been saying? Uh, <laughs> not going to speak <laughs> ill of her, but I will say that I think she said she had like however many uh, major semifinals, eight, ten, or whatever. It was always versus, semi uh, always versus a Hall of Famer. Yep. <laughs> Not so much the parody that we see now. It's like you get to this round, okay, here's an all-time great in the yep. game of tennis. No, the so. consistency that those players showed, and there were there were so many of them over the course of, you know, two or three generations. They all kept stepping up, and they all kept dominating, you know, and they were they, they get they got younger and younger, but they got better and better. Yeah. And then you had Venus and Serena pop along as well at the tail yeah. end of that, you know, and the likes of Lindsay. So it was incredible. Uh, now we miss that, yeah. no doubt. We want the rivalries at the top of the women's game. We've still got some great players, but you know the flip side of that is you get these great stories like we had at the U.S. Open yeah. with, with Layla and Emma coming through to the final. I mean, that captured everybody's imagination. So that's a, a wonderful flip side to have, but I think long-term we want Naomi to be back playing regularly, supporting the tour, supporting the big events, and having rivals. And for those rivals to be duking it out at the majors, yeah. you know, that, that's what we so loved about, you know, Federer and Nadal and the likes of Djokovic and Connors and McEnroe and Borg. You name those great rivalries and they were dominant for a certain period of time. They had different personalities that are different styles of tennis and they were the ones that transcended our sport. They really did. They really did. Uh, lastly, before I let you go, uh, the Billie Jean King Cup. What's your thoughts on what you've seen with that? In addition, you know, the Davis Cup to the rubbers, it's all this tournament style where it's all on one location. It's three rubbers instead of five. How have you adjusted to uh, this new form of team, Billie Jean King Cup and Davis Cup? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. Mm -hmm. I, I worked the Davis Cup a couple of years ago and with Spain doing well, it was in Madrid. So we had great crowds and it was, I think it's, I think it's okay to play it within one week, um, but you've got to make sure that you get good crowds because one of the great things about Davis Cup and formerly Fed Cup, now Billie Jean King Cup, is the fact that you have such great support when you're playing at home and it's a unique atmosphere yeah. that's generated in the Davis Cup. You know, it, I've worked a lot of those ties and being present at a lot of those ties and it's been 
fantastic. Like a European football atmosphere. Yes, you know, and everybody's chanting and singing, <laughs> and it's it's incredible. You know, Andy Murray, again, something else that often gets forgotten. He's pretty much single-handedly won <laughs> no, the Davis Cup. He for, did. For, you could say he did, because I was in 2015. He literally won. He had to win every singles tie and doubles the whole run, and he did it. And a lot of the top <laughs> players at that time were not playing Davis Cup yeah. because they were concentrating on their own. So remember, that's 2015, 2016, year-end world number one, all of that tennis that he had to play, all of that yeah. additional pressure that he yeah. had to shoulder. Incredible commitment and incredible effort from Murray. So, you know, it's kind of a, I'm not sure, I don't mind it being played in a week, but it's certainly not the same competition. It, it's not the same atmosphere. And, and whenever a sport loses a unique event like that, I think it's a shame because it was so traditional. You know, one of our most long-standing events as well. So I, I think it's hard when you get rid of that tradition because that's what all of the majors are about, been around for so long. Um, so if you're going to embrace this new style, then you want to make sure that it's played in the right places that gets a lot of support. In Prague this week, you know, not so much. So, so that's the difficulty. You're representing your country. It's a big deal. Phenomenal effort by Daniel Collins earlier today and good effort by Cathy Rinaldi to get the team through off the back of that first loss to Slovakia. But it's always a shame when you're playing yeah. in front of an empty stadium. And in Madrid a couple of years ago, for the Spanish matches, absolutely packed to the rafters. For the other matches few hundred people watching, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a shame. And, and are you as a tennis fan going to travel to a different country to support your team, knowing that they might lose and they might not get through the group? Yeah. You know, when you've got a home tie, you know when it is months in advance, you know who's going to be playing, buy your tickets, go there to support it. So it's a very different competition. I loved the Davis Cup before. Uh, and it's, it's a shame, but give it a couple of years. Can we work on it? Can we get a make sure it's played in places that it, it's going to be well supported. I think right. that's key, uh, but it's it's not quite the same. Nevertheless, good effort by Team USA to get through to the knockout stages today because they were uh, very much up against it with that opening loss against Slovakia. They were, and uh, important to note that it was delayed, so I know that might have had, like, it was a delayed Fed Cup this year. We hope that with more planning, and as you said, tweaking it, making it a little better, but I am with you. I miss those home ties, those rowdy atmospheres, that the Davis Cup matches. You get Nadal in Spain or even, you know, Djokovic in Serbia where the crowd just going ballistic. I mean, even those great stories where yeah. you used to have to play in South America and, you know, people would be throwing <laughs> stuff at you. They'd have the yeah. mirrors out in the crowd. Yeah. You'd be trying to serve. Guys would be, like, blinding you. Terrible to be yeah. actually trying to compete. Yeah. But great stories and yeah. unique atmospheres. And matches that you will talk about for the the rest of your life. Uh, great uh, rocking chair moments. Absolutely, Jason Goodall. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you coming on this new medium. And you know, feel free. You don't even need to copyright the heater phrase. Just keep using it. <laughs> I want to use it. Don't that. even need to credit me. It's all yours now. That's Thank you my very gift much. To you. But that was Jason Goodall on Tennis Channel Inside. And we'll be back next week to recap Paris. Look ahead to the ATP and WTA finals. Check out every episode on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're on all your platforms as well. I'm Mitch Michaels for Jason Goodall. This was Tennis Channel Inside. And See you next week.